Troy Gold Goldberg definitely inspiration on that. So have the spray foam that's carved um, because these are tree monitors. I can't go the same route as the dart frog people. I have to make walls that are a lot harder, a lot more kind of like dense. So these I, I use a uh, grout, which is like you know the stuff to use for tiles and things like that in the bathroom. They're covered in grout. Uh, uh, which is then dried, made solid like cement, and then um, and then it's painted and then sealed. Yeah, no, for sure. So the feeder holder is basically a, a, a it's a little ring. It's a, a, a ring that can be basically uh, asphyxiated anywhere in the closure. You know, any for any type of animal. It doesn't have to be a reptile. It could be a a, a rabbit. It could be a a rat, ferret, anything like that. Any animal in which you need a place to provide food or water or anything for the animal. Welcome back to the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin and thank you so much for tuning in today. Thank you for bearing with me last week while I skipped a week of episodes. I think I've only skipped two or three weeks this entire year. So last week was a crazy week. So I needed the break from the podcast, but we are back at it today. And I'm super excited to share today's episode with you. Today, I'm speaking with Eddie Garabito, who is also known as Father Blue on Instagram. Eddie is a blue tree monitor keeper and soon to be breeder out of Brooklyn, New York, but he is also an amazing DIY specialist. He builds these incredible enclosures as many monitor keepers have to eventually become just because you need such large enclosures. And he's also an inventor. He has some incredible 3D projects that he's working on that are in the reptile space. And some of the projects I haven't seen anybody else doing these are really unique to him and he is just scratching the surface so in this episode we of course we discuss blue tree monitors how he cares for them how many he has and whatnot we walked through a few of his big diy projects that he's done he also is breeding grasshoppers so i spent a few minutes talking to him about that using grasshoppers as a feeder and then at the end of the conversation sort of the last third we discuss his 3d printing business and how he builds the products he's building and the ideas that he has and really there's some mind-blowing things and i can't wait to see how this space evolves over time as i said in the intro of this episode later on when I'm talking with Eddie. I originally found Eddie from the Reptile Entrepreneur podcast with Bill Strand. They do another episode where they get real, do a deep dive into 3D printing and how all that works. So I want to direct everybody to that podcast as well. And of course, that will be in the show notes. But before we jump into this episode, as always, if you're looking for more information on this episode, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. There you'll find the show notes, including the links to the Reptile Entrepreneur podcast and everything else that we talk about today, all of Eddie's social media and his email account and whatnot. You can also find links to the shop so you can buy a t-shirt or a sweater. $5 for every t-shirt or sweater is automatically donated to the Amazon Rainforest Conservancy. If you would like to join us on Patreon, head to patreon.com slash animals at home. There you get early access to the episodes as well as the opportunity to submit questions to upcoming guests. And we also do a Zoom hangout about once a month and we have a really cool one coming up in December. So if you want to know more about that, go ahead to Patreon. And thank you very much to Custom Reptile Habitat for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. There is affiliate links in both the YouTube description and the show notes. If you do make a purchase, a small commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. And of course, that helps me keep the lights on in the studio. Let's jump into the episode. Enjoy. Well, Eddie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. Thank you, man. Again, I'm a big fan. I'm super excited to talk about this, you know? Yeah, I'm super excited to talk with you as well. I know you followed me on Instagram a few months back, and then I listened to you on the Bill Strand podcast, Reptile Entrepreneur, which I'll point everybody to. I'll put that in the show notes for people because that really blew my mind, and we're going to get into some of that stuff today. And But why don't we go back to the, you know, the original? How did you get into keeping reptiles in the first place? Um, well, I mean, I've been, I've been keeping, you know, I've been around animals my entire life growing up, you know, with like 
dogs and cats and things like that. And it wasn't until like I got a little bit older, uh, like into like high school that I got introduced to my first like uh, reptiles, you know, watching YouTube. You know, I used to follow like I used to follow a lot of these um these older guys that would keep uh, Savannah monitors. And uh, and I I've always fell in love with like how they traded them like almost like little dogs, which is not the best way to talk about, you know, a Savannah monitor or anything like that. But they were like back then they were like on free roam and they, you'd see these big giant lizards coming up to them and loving them. And like it, it was it was dope. So I, I got my first Savannah monitor when I was like, I don't know, like 16, 17 or something like that. And I convinced my mom to like let me I didn't know anything about reptiles. But when I jumped into it, I was like, I need to figure out how to keep these things like the best way in my I, I convinced my mom to let me build this giant, like six foot by like two foot by two foot enclosure in our apartment. Um, you know, <laughs> and that was, I just got stuck with it ever since, you know, it progressed. Um, but yeah, so I started off with that and then um, now I'm to tree monitors. You know, this is, I've always been a monitor guy since I was first got into lizards. I love them um, or reptiles in general. I love them. And these guys, when I first read about them like years ago, I was like, wow, these tree monitors, like how, they look, it's like, it's like, it's like living jewelry, just how beautiful and like eye catching and stunning these things are. And so I was always motivated to like one day, one day I'm going to work with these guys, you know? So do you remember where started. you first, what you first read or where you first saw them on that magazine or, or website somewhere? It, it was, it was on, I used to um, uh, be on this forum called Reptic Zone. Uh, which is like for old school monitor oh, yeah, keepers, yeah, like yeah. Reptic Zone was like the play. It had the craziest forum for like the monitor side was just they had people like Krusty and these guys like just Banshee Racer that were keeping these crazy setups for Argus monitors and black throats and all this. And I remember someone was like posted up these pictures of blue trees, and I was like, "Wow!" I was like, "There's a blue lizard like that, and it's it looks like this, and you're keeping like, what's and like." That that just like I remember that like till this day for sure. Reptic Zone though, back yeah. in the day. I forgot about that that website. I used to yeah. use that website all the time because it was like <laughs> one of the best places for you know asking questions and whatnot. Uh -huh, like, I wonder uh -huh. if it's still around. If it's still no, around, I'll throw it. Is it is it gone? It's, it's gone. Like they archived the website. You know, oh, like you damn. can't you can't see any of the old posts or anything like that. Luckily, I was able to say everything I saw there. I used to screenshot and I kept it in a folder and like email. So I have I have screenshots of like pages that i thought were important to remember you know but yeah i'm, I'm, I'm sad it was gone because there was a, so many cool people on that on that place yeah it was like back back then everything was diy it was a lot of right. doing it yourself and people mm -hmm. were doing these unbelievable projects with their mm -hmm. reptiles and everybody had to be like they were forced to be very creative because right. we just didn't have the supplies and yeah i remember just you just learn so much and you get so many cool ideas from people back then yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah so tell me about when you actually got your first blue tree monitor. What was that like? That oh man, that was a cool experience. I remember it was it was it was like a couple years like at least like three two to three years ago that I I first got them. It was for my birth. I had ordered them specifically because it was going to be my birthday. I wanted to get them for my birthday, um, and it was a pair. I was able to find this from this guy named uh, Ian out in Georgia. I forget what his uh what his uh his company name was but great guy he was willing to work with me i didn't have a lot of money or anything like that back then but he was able to work with me and like kind of do a payment plan because i was so excited to get these guys again they had come up i had never seen them for sale at that to that point uh, and that was my first for sale like you know looking for them and I, I see these guys and uh and i get them and i just i just fell in love once i got them like it was such a hard like learning curve 
taking care taking care of the first pair um, because I've dealt with monitors. I used to keep I, I, I had a Savannah monitor. I used to keep blackheaded monitors or or, or, or Tritus Tristus monitors. Um, so I had experience working with you know arboreal, really kind of like smaller kind of lizards and things like that and bigger stuff. But uh, but tree monitors was a whole different ball game. And uh, so the the force like the me being forced to like do everything correct or these animals can could potentially die kind of really helped me like want to work really hard with these species and make sure that it was, I was doing everything correct. You know, like it was, yeah. Oh yeah. That's um, sorry, but I'm like losing kind of thought, you know, of like what no, 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 everything's jumbled up and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So when, so as far as when you're saying they were a big learning curve and they're a big jump up from the previous monitors, was it mostly because they, they are so sensitive or was there something yeah. about just their care that was difficult? Yeah, it was, it was because they were so sensitive. It led me on this like trail of like, of like, knowledge where I, I want to learn everything i was asking so many questions i was everyone who had tree monitor like on on instagram on facebook i was literally like messaging them like, hey your experience with them what are you doing here like how are you watering them what are you feeding them what type of what time of the day is best what temperature zones are working best for you like should i be bigger enclosures smaller enclosures like it was just like a non a, a constant non-ending you know kind of like search for more you know and and that's what really made me fall in love and dive deep into that hole of these guys you know was that original pair were they wild caught or were they a captive bred pair they were a wild caught they were a wild caught but they were apparently here for like a year or so mm. um i don't know whether what what the case was or anything like that but they definitely weren't captive bred or anything like that for sure imports. do you mind telling us how much you paid for that pair oh back then uh i paid for the pair eighteen hundred dollars which oh, okay. is which is uh if, like wild compared to now like the the prices for them have like skyrocketed because of the demand you know finding a pair of tree monitors for eighteen hundred dollars you know two three years ago I, I I think that was like the norm now you're looking in the realm of like twenty five hundred three grand for a right. single animal wow that's yeah, yeah. yeah so how many do you have right now uh, I have in my possession I have eight. Uh, but one of them is on a loan from a friend of mine. So he wanted to stick his female with us in a project to see what could come about it, you know? And so that, that's what we have right now. Yeah. Cool. Well, I, I want to get into kind of the breeding and, and why you're doing that. But first, you know, monitors are an interesting animal because I think everybody's drawn to them. They're just so fascinating. Yeah. They're kind of like a parrot, like you're watching, they're so inquisitive and whatnot, but I have never kept one. And I imagine that I never will keep one just because not everybody should probably keep a monitor just because of the, how intense that animal is and how much care you need to provide. So like, who, who do you think should have, uh, for example, a tree monitor? Because you do need space. And like, what are some of the things that people need to have in their life to make sure they could actually do that properly? Yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a big life commitment for sure. Getting into these these animals uh, because they're they're hardy for sure. You know they can go you know a couple of days uh, with you know unintended neglect. You know, so like if you forgot to like oh I didn't water or something like that, they're fine. They're like they're not a very like super sensitive species, but they're an animal that needs a lot of dedication. Like the amount of like food that they eat the amount of space that they require the amount of like kind of like little things that you have to notice because um you know these are it, it, well for tree monitors particularly they're sensitive with you know uh moisture you know so making sure they don't get dehydrated their humidity is correct and things like that um i would say that these guys are definitely like a a, a more advanced keeper you know set of animals um uh 
just because the littlest thing can definitely turn them into like a stressful state in which they'll just deteriorate really fast. You know, uh, they'll stop eating, they'll stop drinking um, and things like that. And it, it all depends on like the space that you have as well. You know, like for me, for example, my, my enclosures are, are on the larger side. Like right now, I just finished a, a set of three enclosures that measure six foot tall by four feet wide by 30 inches deep. Um, you know, and that's usually kind of, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to say like what's the minimum requirement for a tree monitor because there's a lot of there's a lot of debate on that. Um, but in my opinion, bigger is better, you know, um, and that's a lot of space. You got to think you have that much space for one cage times that by three. And those are only three of my cages, not to mention the other cages that I have from other animals, you know, so like it definitely require a lot of space, time and, and, and commitment for sure, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, yeah, they're one of those animals, you know, they're a fairly fast moving animal. They're quite active. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you almost, yeah, having a large space for sure is a necessity. And then as, as far as care goes, just basic care, can you run through just kind of general how, how you're caring for these guys? You don't have to go yeah. into super depth. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, 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 I try to keep, like I said before, I, when I got into my, when I keep any animal, I try to research to keep these guys in the best possible kind of like conditions that I'm able to provide for them. So I've done a lot of research in terms of like, like lighting situations to make sure that they have the correct kind of like UVB, um, heat zones, as well as, you know, kind of like, uh, uh, visual lighting for them and things like that. So I also, on top of, uh, on top of, heat heat lamps and 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 uvb i also use full spectrum like led bulbs and things like that inside of there uh for my guys i have them on automatic mistering systems so that i can keep the humidity in a constant range of like no you know no lower than the 80s like low 80s all the way to the hundreds in some days and then i have them you know a, a big dry time during the day with those guys i feed them daily uh, my my younger monitors and my bigger monitors, my males, I keep I feed those guys like every other day, like try to tongue feed those guys. But I feed them a mix of like roaches, grasshoppers, crickets, quail, um, eggs and 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 mice, you know, sometimes and things like that, you know, during like breeding season when I want to like get the big and stuff like that. And then, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. My enclosures provide them like ample places to to bash so i try to keep like two to three lamps per cage so that everybody has like a place to like bash and things like that and um and yeah you know yeah and water them again they get misted and watered daily you know mm -hmm. every couple hours automatically and my lights as well turn on and off automatically so that everything is like controlled taken care of and so if i see anything weird i have you know all these variables that i can like cross off and say like it's not that it's not that it mm -hmm. could be this you know are you doing any sort of seasonal replication? I, obviously, in Indonesia, there's a fairly heavy wet season and a dry yeah. season. Do you mess around with anything like that? Yeah, I have in the past, for sure, um, to try to induce different, like, breeding, you know, behaviors between these guys. Um, I've learned that, like, you know, during this time, it tends to be, like, a little bit more of a wetter time and things like that for them. So I would generally miss really heavy, where I would do periods of, uh, of misting zones where there were, like, it was almost like raining in their cages. It would be misted for like a period of like two to three minutes at a time, you know, over like a span of like eight times in a day, you know. So it would it would try to keep those cages really moist, kind of where they're 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 you know from like endemic from and things like that. So I did that in the past. It was fine. I didn't like just I I, I felt like my at the time my my cages weren't set up like to be ventilated properly for mm -hmm. me to continue to do that stuff without maybe causing harm to them. So I stopped that. Now I'm just on a normal kind of like 
missing setup and things like that and just going out on like you know normal normally with these guys so keeping them in a normal yeah well, it, it is interesting because it, it is tempting to replicate, you know, a really heavy wet season and a dry season, right, like you said, but right. it's, it's exactly the issue is when you have no, not enough ventilation, it becomes stagnant and too wet and right, it's probably, right. probably worse for the animal. Like you'd rather right. just have a steady, consistent one that ha- allows for them to dry out rather than just having three months where they're just soaked all the time. Right, right. Exactly. I mean, again, we're trying to create like the best environment we can here, you know, capable and stuff you know, that I'm capable of and... Yeah, I would I would feel that I need big exhaust systems to like take out air and put in back air and things like that. And then, yeah, I, I just don't want to like potentially harm them and stuff like that. So I don't I stop from that. Yeah, yeah. So as, as far as the breeding goes, what motivated you to start a breeding project? I'm sure when you first saw that species, you thought, OK, I want to care for them. I want to have those animals because they're so beautiful and I want to work with them. Did you immediately think that you were going to breed them as well? Or I mean, you bought a pair originally, so maybe right. you were already thinking that what what, what pushed you into that direction? I always wanted to work with one animal. I've I've never bred of all the animals that I've kept in my life. I've never had a goal of breeding them. It was always like, Oh, I like these animals. I want to keep them as a pet and things like that. Uh, and when I got into these guys and, and kind of started researching and figuring out like, you know, how, you know, they're rare, how rare they are in our kind of like hobby, um, you know, with not even a lot of zoos and things like that, knowing too much about these guys and these guys only being discovered in the last, like, you know, 15 years or so, you know, it's just not, well, not discovered, but like, you know, scientifically, you know, acknowledged in the last 15 years or so. Um, it just led me on this path of wanting to kind of help with these guys and bringing their kind of numbers up and, and their awareness up, you know, in captivity. Um, my ultimate goal with this entire project and, you know, it's it's a far cry. And I know that the zoological sector doesn't really mess well with the, you know, kind of hobby sector. But I would love to be kind of one of the pioneers in getting these guys established here in the USA or in captivity uh, and kind of like unlocking that key of what it is to keep these guys perfectly in, in healthy in captivity and then starting up kind of breed other breeding projects around the country with zoological kind of you know uh, places so that's my goal i would love to have at one point like once these guys start producing to just give them away you know to zoos that would want to take them to hopefully start their own projects and things like that so that these guys potentially don't become extinct you know like um they're 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 from what i've seen i hear there are people there are the people who keep them obviously you know here in the u.s and in europe specifically there's a big kind of like group of people that keep them out there but there there's not a lot of information about them there's not a lot of people talking about them there's not like a you know there's 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 not even a video anyone no one's ever caught and captured these guys on camera or anything like that you know like how they act and and and, and are, are in the wild you know so like i, I kind of just want to help that mm-hmm. that whole kind of like narrative and push it so that these guys we don't lose them one day you know yeah it's interesting it's almost, it's one of those examples of a species where there's almost no natural history information and this is where the private sector does do a great job of learning about these animals okay what makes them tick how do you make them breed how do we make sure that we know how to do this in captivity and you can actually learn a lot about these wild animals in that captive space provided that the care is you know attempting to replicate their natural environment so yeah so are all eight that you have right now are they all wild caught no, 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 no. Okay. I have uh, I have one that's a captive. Uh, he's a captive bred here in the U.S. Um, he's my meal. The other ones I have, 
I have a couple of them are like questionable, like their origin. I'm not sure whether they were like captive hatch, captive bred or anything like that. Their mannerisms and the way that they like kind of like when I got them, how healthy they were, you know, for such a small size, things like that. Let's me to, to believe that you were either established very well before I got them or they were either captive hatched or something like mm -hmm. that because of how healthy they appeared, not very like sickly or anything like that, like a cat, like a wild caught. Um, but the majority of mine is wild caught only because yeah. Only because of uh, how hard it is to acquire, you know, adult captive bred animals, you know. Well, yeah, if, if it's not established in the hobby, it's virtually impossible, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. And so, why did you? Why do you have eight? Why? Why not start with a smaller number? Do you have? Was there a, a reason to have a, a larger population? Well, when I noticed how you know in demand they started becoming, you know, like everybody started getting them, and then I started seeing like they would pop up here and there. Again, they were really rare already in the hobby. You know, there weren't a lot of people already working with them. Uh, and then people who were like getting rid of them were people like, ah, oh, I'm tired of these guys. I want to get them out of the, you know, I want to, I want to work with something else. This and that. I don't really care about these guys or anything like that that much. Um, I just wanted to get a better chance of, of working, you know, having a, a compatible pairs, you know, when I pick, when I put them together, the issue with tree monitors that I've learned, you know, researching is that, um, compatibility between two animals is very important. You know, you just can't stick one male with one female and they get together. Generally, you know, in, in some cases they won't breed, you know, so you have to kind of, I wouldn't say play around, but, you know, set up, you know, check out how two pairs interact with each other, how they bond, how they, how, if they're compatible or not in order to be successful. So I did it to just increase my chances of, of success in the project and things like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And how far are you from, do you think, actually breeding or, or getting, you know, viable offspring? Well, last year was my first attempt at, at breeding. Uh, and I, I only attempted with one pair. Um, and uh, that year I did get these animals to to breed. They, they, they did lock up and everything like that. Um, I was doing a lot of experimenting with rain cycles, with kind of uh, 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 feeding conditioning. So like, where I, you feed them a lot less coming up to their season of breeding and then you feed them a lot and things like that uh, to kind of get them to the cycle. Um, and I did get a couple times, you know, again, these, these guys to lock up. Uh, whether the female became rabid or not, I'm not sure. You know, I could have gotten eggs and then lost them, you know, from the male or something like that. Um, I, know, I don't know. I, I just remember them doing that. And then, you know, unfortunately, I didn't get eggs. So this year has been like, in preparation for that was getting everything, all my conditions, kind of everything correct, you know, starting those cycles of feeding and, 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 uh, and kind of conditioning them to get them ready for breeding this season. So this year I plan to pair up three pairs. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, that, that's very exciting. And yeah. I'm not sure if you listened to the episode that I did with Nick Gordon from the Abronia Alliance, but they're starting that cloud forest Alliance, which is, you know, they're looking for people who are working with very niche species and who are you know, essentially exactly what you're doing. So I'm not sure if that's something you'd want to be in. I can talk to you about it afterwards. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're done recording, but there is, I, I love finding people who are just like involved in a single species and are just focused on one thing. And, and I think that, even though, like you said, the bridge between the zoological world and the private sector isn't great, having people like yourself do this sort of thing will actually make that bridge stronger. And, and maybe we can start crossing animals back and forth like they do in Europe. That's a lot more popular yeah. there. Yeah, 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 exactly. Have you ever, as far as the other species of tree monitor, are you interested in, in them at all? Or are you just going to stay focused on the blues? I am. I, I actually had a pair of uh, uh, green tree monitors. Those are like, because of how beautiful they are. They're like, I love the bright colors and everything like that. And they were, they were awesome. Um, I wanted to move away from that just because I wanted to, 
you know, for the space and what my project, my ultimate project is to like establish these guys, you know, kind of get these guys. Cause they're, they're, I'm not going to say that they're the rarest because they're not, they're, they're just a little bit more. Um, they're not as established as the green trees. I feel, you know, um, they're from a smaller Island, you know, it's a lot harder to get them and everything like that, you know, from that, from that place. Um, I just feel like, I really love my favorite color is blue as well. So that was kind of another kind of like point to that. But I, I really wanted to just buckle down and focus on one species, not really have to worry about, oh, I, I can't keep these guys with these guys because they're from two different places where these these all being the same animal, it's a lot easier to work with them all together, you know, in mm-hmm. the project. So. Yeah, it's easier to have a system of care too because you don't have right. to constantly flipping your mind around. And there, right. like, as you said at the beginning, there is something weird about a blue animal. I don't know what it is. It just right. seems so unnatural to see right. something that's so brightly blue in color. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They are. They're so. They're pretty. They're very pretty animals. They get a little bit bigger as well, which I like. That you know, I, I, coming from owning a savannah monitor and starting off with those guys and things like that, a big hefty lizard that when you have in your hand, you're like, oh, this has some oomph to it. You know, like. That that kind of that that kind of is, is cool as well, you know. And what about behavior wise? Are they skittish? Are they are you able to get them going off the tongs for the most part? How are they around you? So these guys, it depends on the animal. I have animals that are very skittish, uh, that I cannot hold, that I cannot like uh interact with. They won't tong feed or anything like that, but they'll eat perfectly fine. Um I have animals that will, you know, as soon as I open the door, they're rushing to the cage and they'll rip my fingers off, you know, because they're, they're, they're ready to eat and things like that, but they'll eat from the tongs and they'll go on my arms and things like that as well. Um, so it's, it's a mix, you know, I would say that um, the older wild cots that I have, I have two of them that are like a little bit on the older side, like my first starting off ones, those guys aren't, aren't very handleable, but the other ones have been in captivity for so long. Uh, I have, I have uh a pair that's probably been in captivity for like five years or so that's super, that's very comfortable around people. It's very easy to work with and things like that, but that's not the norm. I'd say generally with tree monitors are very skittish, very flighty, always hiding. Um, not an animal that you, you kind of see, you know, it's like kind of one of the case, like empty cage syndrome, you know, with these mm-hmm. animals. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure as the captive bred ones become more popular and you start working with them right out of the egg, they'll right. probably become a lot more tame. Right. So why don't we spend a little bit of time talking about the build that you just did? It's right behind you. For those who are watching on YouTube, you can see it. And if those, if you're listening in your car, you can go check out Eddie's Instagram after. But you have these three sort of massive enclosures that are side by side by side. So can you just walk us through how you built those? Yeah, yeah. So uh, those are those are a really cool project. I wanted to. Uh, I was moving to a new place, and you know, with the new place, it gives me a new kind of like zone layout and everything like that. Of what I can like build out with space and things like that. Um, so I wanted to do something that was really big, really nice looking, and, and kind of gives them all the kind of you know uh, uh, enrichment and kind of like things they need to you know be healthy. So I built these giant cages, which are six foot tall, uh, four foot wide by thirty inches deep, um, and they have entire uh, entirely covered walls of fake rock walls that I built myself. Um, but the whole process of them was like, like a, you could check my Instagram um, and kind of see how I started off and everything like that. But basically it started off of like a, a wooden frame, obviously that's treated and covered. So everything is like uh, completely uh, waterproof. Um, the, the rock wall was made by using spray foam that I kind of like uh, uh, shaped out in the way that I want it, carving it out and things like that. Um, if you look at, if you look at like the, the, um, 
the dark dark, dark frog community mm-hmm. that's where i got a lot of the inspiration from the Troy Troy Goldberg and, exactly yeah. exactly he actually was inspir- he if it wasn't for him and me learning the hacks that he does to like shape these i would have still been over here dude like carving out yeah. the foam honestly you know but did you uh, get the drill going with the wire brush exactly yeah. is what yeah. i did because yeah. i've been I make, i've been making fake rock walls for like I don't know, years, man, like keeping at my other animals with the blackheads. I did the same thing, similar enclosures, but they weren't as cool as these or as a detailed because I was just like spray foaming and then putting paint and then dry lock and hoping it stays all together, you know, but uh, this is like years of me working and, 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 and perfecting that process. But Troy Gold, Goldberg, definitely inspiration on that. So have the spray foam that's carved um, because these are tree monitors. I can't go the same route as the dart frog people. I have to make walls that are a lot harder, a lot more kind of like dense. So these, I, I use a grout, which is like, you know, the stuff to use for tiles and things like that in the bathroom. They're covered in grout, uh, uh, which is then dried, made solid like cement. And then um, and then it's painted and then sealed um, all over and things like that. Yeah. So uh, from these cages as well, I mean, I, after I did all that stuff, I obviously planted them out and put it, put all the wood and everything like that in these guys. Um, but yeah, they, I made sure that these, these cages are like completely self-sufficient. They're, 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 they have a bioactive soil for, you know, little things that I can't like control. If, if I, if I miss like a little piece of food or something like that, that, that I can't find or something like that, it's going to be taken care of. They're all automatically misted. All my lights, turn on and off automatically and things like that. Uh, humidity is all community, you know, controlled via uh, humidity gauges that will sense the humidity. So they'll turn on the, the, the missing systems and things like that. But yeah, just again, trying to create the perfect environment for these and all, all this stuff built by me, by my two hands, which yeah. is cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> you must've gone through a ridiculous amount of cans of the great stuff. Foam. Oh dude, you should see, <laughs> I posted a picture on, on Instagram, on, on Facebook, on the, on the DIY pages. I have, I live in, in Brooklyn, New York, so I don't really need a car or anything like that, but I have this giant cargo bike and I have, it's like, it's like a, a two pallets with like, I don't know, like 50 cans of the spray foam that oh i needed for the for this thing yeah it was definitely a lot of it man <laughs> so do, do, do you not have a car i, I have a yeah, i do have a car oh you yeah, do have, have a car a, okay yeah, i have a car but it's it's a project car like getting built up and everything like that yeah, yeah. you know i can drive it around and stuff but I'd, I'd rather take my bike it's just so how did you get the wood in because i know that's a thing that people you know if you live in an apartment or you don't have a vehicle or you have a small vehicle you're dealing with basically sheets of plywood how did you did you get that delivered or how did you get that to your to your home on my bike on, on, my, on, my, on my cargo bike yeah if you <laughs> i have a cargo bike like i said it's 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 from uh it's from uh copenhagen so those guys over there you know they have it down packed with what bikes should be able to do and everything like that but this bike i can carry a full-size person on it i can carry my wood i've i've moved a house once you know <laughs> living here in brooklyn my my place once on the bike and things like that so yeah I have a oh my God. cargo okay, bike need, that was able to carry that. That <laughs> I'll is send you a picture so you can see it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll put the, I'll put the picture in the video and in the show notes as well so people can see because now I need to I need to picture that. That's an, <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. So that's cool. So when you had just the plywood before you applied the spray foam, did you, I think you said you sealed the wood or did you seal the wood right, first? Right. Yeah, I did what, seal what the did wood. What did you seal yeah. it with? I I've learned over the years uh, to use like these certain products. So I one of the things that I do is I, I use a um. It's like a, a, a waterproofing, like kind of like paint um, that's used all over. And everybody knows it. The dark frog guys knows, but it's called dry lock. Mm-hmm. 
So it's okay. one of those paints that's like uh, it's like a masonry, like kind of concrete waterproofer type of deal, you know. So you get like that couple layers, probably like five, six layers of paint before I do any other work. You know, I also seal the edges with silicone and things like that. And then from there, I can build my wood, my 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 walls and things like that. You know, the wall, the rock walls themselves are already on top of that, also waterproof, you know. Right. So so it's 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 doubled kind of protected, you know. Yeah, and I like dry lock because it doesn't have a super strong smell as, as well. Like right, once you apply right, it, right. it's not like a huge, you're not like fuming yeah. out your entire apartment or anything. Yeah, it works well. And I've I've made full rock walls using just dry lock as well. Instead of just grout, I would carve my my foam and then paint over with dry lock. And it works well, but for monitors, I wanted something a little bit more hefty. And so I went with grout. You know, that's when I kept blackheads. Is just, I built the, their rock walls the same method. It just it just lasts a little bit better, you know. Yeah, I guess they they have such sharp nails that it just cuts right. through the the foam. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you also have open sides. I think it looks like you have a clear panel on on the right, actual right, sides. right. On the on the two uh, end end cages, I went with v, uh, big uh, clear vent panels for viewing. You know, I just wanted something to look aesthetically pleasing. Uh, maybe I can shoot you a video, so like a walkthrough video, so that the other That'd be awesome. See anything like that? Yeah. But uh, the sides have uh, two viewing panels because I want to be able to see them, you know, when I walk into the door or go into my room and things like that. So, so I do have that. And then the fronts are, are, are big viewing panels as well. Uh, again, just for the aesthetics, I want to be able to see them kind of see all everywhere, every corner. Cause again, they hide a lot, you know? Mm. So, you know, if I have just the front viewing, they could be in a little place that I can't see and something could be going on where they're not eating or something like that. And I just want to be able to monitor them, you know, a lot, a lot better that way. So. Is that glass or is that plexiglass or acrylic? Plexiglass, the front and the bottom panel, and then the top entrance panel is glass. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and I did it. I did it for cost savings. Uh, I would have done glass all the way around, but it's you know me living here. It's not a permanent situation. It's an apartment, so I, mm-hmm. I want to make sure that if anything. I'm not taking like a crazy loss if I have to move this and things like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then you have like a bunch of branches that looks like you got from outside yeah, and everything. Yeah. Did you branches. bring those in on your bike as well? I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got to stop go complaining to... about having yeah. a small car. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's cool. Everything, I... everything I'm built on this, on this thing, literally from the stand that the, the cages are sitting on, the cages themselves, the glass, everything was, took, was, transport on the bike <laughs> okay yeah, everybody a, listen there's no excuses anymore i have a, pickup truck. I have a pickup truck but I'd, I'd rather just use the bike as fast <laughs> <Wow. man. laughs> that's amazing well that's awesome and you, you you do have some live plants like you said in there how hard are the monitors on those uh they're very hard it depends what plants i use i'm very limited on what i will put inside of these guys a lot of pothos uh, a lot of um i forget what these they're they're they're, they're plants that you can find readily at home depot Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I put them in a manner that, you know, I'll put them on the base of the floor, you know, I, I put them on the floor of the, of the cages and things like that to kind of fill out that space for them just to kind of help, you know, with, with, uh, uh, controlling the wetness of the ground as well. And the monitors don't go down there a lot or anything like that. So it's perfectly fine for them. Uh, there's a couple of suspended plants, things like that here as well. Um, again, I put them in locations that I feel as though the monitors aren't going to be like, you know, moving around too much in because if i were to place them in those active areas they'll they'll shred them to bits i've had (laughs) i've had cages where i've like spent like literally hundreds of dollars filling them out with live plants and within a month they're all dead (laughs) because of the monitor so yeah yeah this that's one with very active species very strong right they're just going to terrorize the plants but and it's not like them wanting to like mess with the plants themselves it's just them passing through them all the time it's just 
shreds them to bits. Yeah, yeah. Well, and one other project that I want to talk about before we get into some of the main stuff that you're doing is you're breeding grasshoppers. And I think, oh. I assume that's mostly for, for the monitors you'd already mentioned right. that you're feeding them off. So tell me about that because that's a feeder that we don't see as often in North America. In, in Europe, it's a lot more popular. They feed right, locusts right. and grasshoppers and whatnot. So how did you get down into grasshoppers and how is the breeding going? Well, I saw I saw some people, uh, you know, the, 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 the main guy who's working with the grasshoppers here in the U.S. is Kai. Uh, and he from the from the West Coast, and he posted you know pictures of him feeding his animals and and these how these grasshoppers, and I just saw the feeding response that his animals had. You know, like as soon as he would show one of these guys, you would see his monitors just like jump crazy over these. I've never seen my animals interact with food in that way, not even with roaches or anything like that. You know, this, I, and I was just like, wow, this is a this is a if I can get some of those animals that are not like they're like really picky eaters they're mm-hmm. gonna go bananas when they see these things you know so so you know i contacted him and my goal was i wanted to start with a big group i was like if i'm gonna get these guys i'm gonna go all in so that i can hopefully get be as successful as i can with that and, and hopefully be running you know with millions of grasshoppers so i can keep these guys on, on like a full insect diet, you know, which is for me, that's the, the, my hundred percent goal is to get them on a, a insect, like a 90% insect based diet, mm. you know, with variety so that they can be healthy. So I got the grasshoppers. I think I started off with 200 grasshoppers, which is a big investment. Um, uh, and, and, and Kai was super awesome with helping me kind of like get them set up perfectly him and another friend of mine, Cody, um, from the tree monitor world and things like that. They, those guys were really successful in breeding, breeding grasshoppers, but I was able to get their setup, their cages and everything like that. And with those little bugs, the smallest little thing is so important to get them to be prolific. Otherwise they die off and you don't get anything and stuff like that. So it was a big learning curve, but now they're I'm successfully reproducing. I have eggs. I've hatched the eggs. The eggs are growing. I have like, I have, I have, two cages now with maybe a thousand grasshoppers in it. So I've already wow. like, you know, I already got my investment back plus, you know, so they're, they are, I did not expect them to be that, you know, I'm not going to say they're easy, but that prolific. And wow. I'm super excited with that for sure. And what are you keeping them in? It looked like some sort of screen cage. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I got a repti breeze, um, okay. you know, so mine is a little bit bigger. I, I just, the, I'm, I moved them over to smaller ones, but like, the, the cages are about like 18 inches by 18 inches by 20, you know, so they're like not they're not too big, not too big, not too small. Uh, but that helps me keep about like 500 grasshoppers per little cage and they're they're good to go from there, honestly, now. And and were your monitors showing the same food response that you saw originally? A hundred per no, 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 no. When I got these, when I got them over to grasshoppers, I have one female blue tree she's like my first ever monitor ever since i got her she has been the pickiest eater never been able to like put on like crazy weight or anything like that was always a really slim fragile looking monitor um as soon as i introduced her to grasshoppers it was wild to see her just running around the cages chasing an animal that actually like runs away that she can see is bigger than a than a cricket like it was amazing to see how different that response was to those to those insects compared to like crickets and dubia. So super excited with that. Yeah. Very excited. So that must be obviously some sort of wild cue as well in nature. It I'm is. sure they're eating something like that in the wild. That's not, so from research papers, 
I like they uh, from research papers that they've done, you know, books and things that I've read. When they've done surveys on tree monitors, eighty percent of their gut contact was insects like grasshoppers, katydids, and things like that. You know, so they were majority eating those animals out in the wild. So it has to be, again, like you said, a natural like feeding response to seeing, hey, I know what the hell this is. I had that before, you know, so. Will they, do they fly the grasshoppers? They do fly. Yeah, they jump and fly. Yeah. So that's a big plus with them as well. Exactly. So when one tries to go and you see this thing flying, that's what gets them exciting. I feel, you know, they just, they'll go crazy for them. Oh, that's cool. So you have a very powerful jumper and they'll actually have space to fly within mm-hmm. the enclosure. So it's mm-hmm. a good hunt for them as well. Exactly. And then what are the challenges of breeding the grasshoppers? As you said, it's not easy. It's not like breeding crickets where they kind of breed easily. Well, th- because it, it, I guess it's dealing with a diurnal kind of like, you know, species of insect where it has to have light. You know, I'm so right. used to keeping roaches and, and mealworms and these things that don't need that. You just put them in a tub, you feed them, you water them. They're good to go. Give them heat. They're good to go. They'll, they'll, they'll reproduce no problem. But these guys need artificial light or some type of light source. They need that to, you know, kind of reproduce and kind of get the instinct to reproduce. They need constant heat to kind of mimic like a sunspot and things like that for them to bask, almost like lizards and snakes, which is kind of kind of funny. And they eat a ton. Um, they eat a ton. And then you also have to provide them an environment that's completely um, how to say this, that has a, a, enough sufficient airflow. You know, so if you get, if you put them in a tub that creates condensation, you know, from the food that they're eating because you're feeding them lettuce all day and things like that, and different greens, that produces a lot of condensation that can literally suffocate them and they can die from that. You know, if you don't feed them enough, they'll start getting hungry. They'll start eating each other. Like, so you have to be on top of it. You have to give them a basking zone that's in like the 90s range, giving a sufficient amount of food, give them an area to deposit their eggs like it's just so many things that go into place. And if you forget about these, you'll have grasshoppers eating each other, grasshoppers laying eggs on top of lettuce that then get eaten by other grasshoppers or, you know, like it's, it's just a lot to deal with. But once you figure it out and you get it down packed, they're like, they just, they just reproduce like crazy. Yeah. Well, I remember my one experience with grasshoppers was maybe two summers ago. I thought I would go outside and catch some and try to feed my geckos. My geckos weren't super keen on them, so I didn't try it again. But just trying to catch grasshoppers outside was a nightmare. Like, I thought it would be easy. I'm like, oh, I'll just go outside. There's so many grasshoppers where I live, like yeah, tons. Yeah, yeah. They're flying. They're hitting you. Just to get them, it was horrible. So yeah. I meant, like, if you have any escapees, I bet that's a real pain. Right, right. Yeah, it is. It is definitely is. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's every time I have to open up the cage to feed them, they're just jumping on. I'm like, oh my God, I got to find yeah. five of these guys now. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. So that, that's actually a good segue into the projects that you're working with the 3D printing. And I'll say, if anyone wants to know the like very technical work of what Eddie's doing, go listen to the Reptile Entrepreneur podcast because they get into like what programs you use and all that. We won't go, yeah. get too much into that today. But Tell me about the 3D printing in general. How did you get into it originally? And, and then how did you draw the line to, or, or did you get into it for starting your first product there? No, no. So the 3D printing came completely separate from the reptile stuff. I've been, uh, uh, I used to be, I used to work in a bike industry, like bicycles, you know, like riding bikes and things like that, not motorcycles. Uh, and I came up with this idea of wanting to create my own bike for myself so that I can ride around on because I'm a tall person. I'm like six foot three. So it's really hard to get bike frames, my size, you know, to that fit me well. Um, so I got into the 3d printing world so that I can create a bike frame, made my bike frame that I wanted. And so I learned these new skills of 3d design and manipulation and being able to like create these, you know, 
objects physically um and that led me into the world of of like how can i use these tools that i already own that i've invested so much money into to help my animals you know so i you know with the tree monitors going back to like how how like finicky and picky and kind of like shy these guys are a lot of times these guys won't eat in front of you you know if you try to provide them with a, a meal like a dubia roach or a cricket if i let them loose in their cage i'm never i'm never gonna know whether my animal ate them or not they'll disappear they'll go somewhere who knows so you know i've i've, I've tried with like you know you know stapling cups to wood and seeing if that would work but you know i it, it just i wanted to make a way that i could just like pop in my food, make sure that it doesn't go anywhere. I can see if my animal is eating or utilizing it. Um, and that led to, to the first project, which is the 3d printed feeder holders, you know, which was me to do, develop a way that I can put my feeder insect or my food or whatever, my water, be able to see if my animal is eating it and then also being able to take it out and put it back in, replace it if I needed to, you know, quickly, you know, so that, that, that led to that realm. And that's how kind of, I got into that whole world. And then from there, it just blew up all the ideas that I had, you know, when I made one and I could see that it can work and, uh, and I had so many people interested in it, you know, they were like excited for what I was doing that led me to all these other projects, like the, the, uh, the, the egg laying box or the, 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 the hide that I'm creating and all these other little kind of small things as well. So. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll get into those for sure because I want to discuss those. I'm sure you have a million different ideas that you want to get into <laughs> for sure. So, can you describe what the the feeder holder is for those who are just listening? What it is and and how you use it? Yeah, no, for sure. So the feeder holder is basically a, a, a it's a little ring. It's a a ring that can be basically uh, asphyxiated anywhere in a closure. You know, any for any type of animal. It doesn't have to be a reptile. It could be a a, a rabbit. It could be a a rat, ferret, anything like that. Any animal in which you need a place to provide food or water or anything for the animal, uh, it creates a. Uh, it's a, again a little little plastic uh, dish catcher, and you can affix it to any piece of wood or 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 or, or surface uh, via some screws. You know, some wood screws and everything like that. And this allows you then to utilize uh, these deli cups like a standard size deli cup, it's clear uh, and plastic. Um, and, and luckily you can get them in different sizes, you know, like in depths and things like that. And it allows me to basically take these cups and put them and replace them or, or put them in, um, in any configuration that I want, you know, to basically put food in or water for my animals, you know, and the, mm -hmm. and the cool things about these cups or about these, these, these dishes is that there's pretty small because they're, if they're just a ring to hold a deli cup that I can put them anywhere within the enclosure and I can put a, you know, quite a few of them per enclosure to give my animals options, you know, yeah. with, again, with the tree monitors, they're really flighty. They don't like to eat in front of you. Um, these, these little, these little uh, contraptions allowed me to place their cups or their food sources very close to the places that they're most active, which are like their, their, their basking zones. So by me being able to put food close to where they're already going to be hanging, it allows them to be closer to their food, allowing them to eat and allow me to know that my animals are, you know, being healthy, are eating and, and getting access to food. So Right. And then I guess with the tall deli cups, the crickets and whatnot can't jump right. out of there. Exactly. Roaches definitely can't crawl yeah, out of there. That was the biggest thing was to create the, the entire motivation. I forgot to say this. The entire motivation for the project was to figure out how can I keep and feed my animals crickets without them escaping? Because that was the worst thing that I was dealing with was like when I would feed my animals crickets, I'd throw in 
20 crickets and then 15 of them will be in my living room. And I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've all been there. It's like, damn it. How the heck did you get out? Yeah. It looked, everything looks sealed. And then there right. one was hopping across the floor. Yeah. So it actually worked. Hey, they, they, worked. they can't get out of there. They couldn't get out of there. And then the, the monitors would go crazy because you, they would see the, the crickets hopping in this jump in this cup trying to get out. Um, and so they'll learn, like, oh, I can't get them from outside. I can get it from the top, you know, and the crickets can't jump out. And so it just it solved that problem of feeding them crickets without the crickets going anywhere. And and yeah, and them. Yeah, it was it was awesome. Yeah. Now, what about the grasshoppers? They must be able to bounce out of the tall ones. The grasshoppers, I don't feed them with the the, the holders. Oh, okay. So I'm, I can if I want to, I'll put like one or two, but they will hop out. For the grasshoppers, my whole thing with them is to make sure that they can, my animals see them. So I'll, I'll generally like tongue feed them. And most of my animals will eat those animals, the, the, the grasshoppers out the tongue. Or I'll just throw a couple of them in there and my monitors will go crazy catching them. When if they don't catch them now, they'll get them later for sure. They're okay. a bigger insects, so it's just easier to let them loose in that cage. Well, and with the grasshoppers too, they're not necessarily going to burrow into the substrate like a roach or a cricket. Right. Like you said, you, you might lose them and you never know. Like superworms, I hate feeding superworms because if you drop a superworm, it goes into the soil right. and you never see it again. You're like, right, well, now exactly. it's... Yeah, so, yeah, so that, that's an amazing idea. And the, the other really cool thing is that you can... I, I like the idea of having several different whole cups, in, especially for water, having several different stations for fresh water within the enclosure right. because that's probably, you know, typically with reptiles, you have one water container and, you know, some of us, we get bad at changing the water. Maybe you leave it a right. few days, but at least having a few separate ones leaves better opportunity to have fresh water. Right. I, I tend to put about four to five holders per cage so that my animals have various places to eat. I'm able to move them. I don't have to put them in the same spots. So that's kind of a form of enrichment and kind of helping them kind of figure out where to go. And then water is, yeah, I can have two to three different places for water. And again, with these guys being so delicate and having to be hydrated all the time, the more water I get for them, just the better they are, you know? Yeah. And then as far as the sizes go, like I think the deli cups are all pretty much the same diameter, like you said, so yeah. there's different heights. But then do you right. have smaller rings as well to hold smaller right. dishes? Yeah, I, I've started developing because, you know, with the project and with people kind of seeing these and kind of seeing what what they can do, I've had other people request to make smaller ones to feed things like crested geckos and like morning geckos and things like that. So there is that where I've already developed one that can hold like, you know, the, uh, the little ketchup containers that you will see, you know, from like, I don't know, from your like your local burger joint, you know. So so those are smaller ones and those can just be like asphyxiated or taped onto a wall and things like that. So I, de I haven't posted those guys yet because I, I didn't I, I haven't like, I guess, had ch a chance to, you know, or anything like that. But mm -hmm. for sure, there's I have a couple of different sizes. I also have one that can fit big buckets uh so like a, a pretty big like painter's bucket like a small painter's bucket uh and and that one is to make like really quick nesting zones for tree monitors that i developed so i can pack those full of dirt bolt it to a screw and now i have a, a really like a, a quick look next nesting zone if i needed to or something like that so, so that plastic is strong enough to hold that much weight oh 100 it's all the wood is what it would have to be strong to hold that weight you know that's the only thing that would be the factor there because okay, I can so I I can print them so they be fully solid or you know not so solid things like that but yeah these these can hold a lot of weight for sure these plastic pieces and then can you run through just your your setup for your 3D printing setup because that was one thing that I found amazing when you were talking to Bill is how many printers you have on the go and and maybe you can also take how long it takes to print one of these things yeah yeah for sure I have at the moment I have five 3D printers uh so it's like a small farm um and and, <laughs> and yeah and and these 3D printers I can probably crank out. I can print one of the, one little feeder holder. If you if people see the picture, it it's about I would say about like 
at the at the longest line on it. It's probably like six, seven inches, you know, probably wide in diameter. And uh, and it's it takes about like 30, 40 minutes to print one of those guys, you know. So uh, and that yeah, and like so I can print them all day long and everything like that. I got the I had I started off with three printers originally purchased two more this year just because of the the amount of people that were asking me for the holders i wanted to be able to create them as fast as i can and things like that so um and i also plan to like start you know kind of like pushing that business or or that that kind of idea out more publicly uh, and so i just wanted to be ready for that whole sort of thing you know mm -hmm. yeah my printers can print a, a, in a space of about 12 inches by 14 inches that's kind of like the dimensions for the actual physical space i have to make whatever i want from it so it's it's yeah they're pretty cool honestly that whole technology and what you can do with it and then if you wanted to go with something bigger could you have just printed out in pieces and then assemble right. after a hundred percent yeah a hundred percent i i i'll i'll design the piece so that they could be like bolted together so that they're super strong and things like that okay so, so how much does the actual i'm sure ink is the wrong word but the actual cartridges that hold the plastic like how, how much does it cost to to load the printer with the plastic that's being used to print oh that's not a lot it's like so it's a plastic that i use uh, or the majority of the plastics available too are that expensive you're probably spending like 15 18 bucks a roll of plastic um, oh, wow. and i can make out of that roll of plastic i can probably make 20 holders Okay. So, wow. So yeah. it's, it's not too much. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, it's funny because even you know you go back ten years and you look at three D printing and it was like very rudimentary. Mm -hmm. Like everything was like I don't even know what you would use with that thing. And now <laughs> it's, it's you can't even really tell when something's been three D printed at home. Right. That's how right. good the quality is getting. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been following that space from from when it first started getting mainstream. Uh, and yeah, the way how fast it advanced and and the things you could do now comparative to what you could have done back then are, are freaking amazing man honestly so you you have like a whole other hobby then that you can layer onto the reptile keeping hobby right. but the pretty 3d printing is essentially its own thing like there's a whole thing that you have to go through as far as learning and everything a hundred percent yeah the learning curve for that was pretty steep um and i and i used it for different industries like i said the cycling industry so i used it a lot to make tools you know, for bikes to fixing things and also like different mounts or hold cameras in certain ways and things like that. So it, it, it was a, the idea behind the 3D printing kind of thing was for like prototyping development and design, you know, so mm. that's why I have those items. It was all to make to make things that I can test out to make sure that they are safe to make in real time, you know, in real life. So, yeah, it's a whole different type of thing. Definitely se separate from the from the monitors, but I'm glad that I got into it because it's been such a useful and vital tool for what i have right now you know well i can imagine how beneficial that would be if you're someone that can conceptualize something and then actually create it with a printer because how often do we all you know we all have some level of diy when it comes to keeping reptiles and you, you sometimes think oh if i just had this a piece of something that would My hold man. this and fix it and then but you can just go okay design that on the computer print it out all the lights in these cages are all custom brackets that I designed and made so I could hold them. Cause I was like the fixtures, I'm like, damn, how am I going to hold these fixtures up? They're like, they're like the old school top zoom at fixtures. So they're, it's not like they can just screw on to, you know, to the top of a surface. Right. I had to make fixtures that can clamp them and hold them in place, but take the heat and everything like that from them and stuff like that. Like, uh, uh, the wood for these to hold some of these pieces of wood have these little brackets that I developed that I can just screw into the, into the grout. And now it's like a little perch that I can lay a piece mm. of wood that I could take off and on like so many things, you know, cause I was like, damn, I don't want to damage the wall that I just 
spent so much time making, like I want to make it safe, you know? So like, yeah, definitely a tool that I, yeah, hundred percent. I'm happy. I have. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the egg laying box too? Because that was something that, you know, posts on Instagram and it's pretty remarkable looking. It's really interesting. So tell me about why you decided to go that route and, and was, was there problems with the, you know, conventional laying boxes that monitor keepers are using? And then, you know, where's that project going? For sure. Yeah. So the idea behind the lay box was, the problem that I kept hearing in the tree monitor community with breeding these guys was the, the potential for them to kind of reabsorb their eggs if females are gravid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, be, and that being because they, they're very picky with where they want to lay, you know, they choose to lay their eggs, you know. Um, so the tree monitors need these very kind of tight parameters. They have to be right temperature, right humidity, right conditions, right type of soil for them to feel comfortable and in the right location. For them to feel comfortable and want to deposit their eggs. If not, you'll hear these stories of people like myself. You get them to pair the pair to breed, and then you're waiting for eggs, and you never get eggs, or they're you know something like that. You, you think maybe they got eaten or something, or most likely they got reabsorbed, um, and it's because of the the not having a sufficient egg laying place. Well, my general idea is that these are arboreal creatures, right? If, and the chances of them being on the ground floor. They're probably going to be susceptible to getting killed by another animal. So I, I'm only I'm, I'm I'm rationalizing in my mind where are these guys probably laying their eggs. I doubt they're laying there. I mean, who knows? There's no there's not enough research to say that they're laying their eggs in the, in the ground. They're, they're laying their eggs in uh you know in certain places. Um, so it led me on this like path to like kind of figure out what's going on. Well, I remember hearing this story with uh. I forget this name, but the guy, I think his name is Cody, the guy who was working with uh, water uh, with, with, with crocodile monitors, and he was bleeding. He, he did that project with the black dragons and things like that. Oh, uh, water monitors, what? Corey. Corey Imar, he, yeah. And, and he talked about how when he made a, a nesting box that was suspended, like a lot higher, his croc monitors started breeding and laying eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he was talking about how, like, oh, yeah, it's because these croc monitors lay their eggs in termite mounds that are in the trees. And I was like, okay, croc monitors are from the same place that tree monitors are from. What are the chances that maybe tree monitors are also laying their eggs in, you know, in the canopies of the trees inside termite mounds. And so that led to the inspiration of creating this, this nest box that was kind of formed and shaped similar to a termite mound that I can have suspended high up in the air and then also controlled with heat and things like that. So I made the heat, the, the, the nesting zone, basically being able to incorporate heat uh, rope on it. So I can, you know, with a thermostat control the temps and everything like that. And and then uh, have all these holes in it so they can drain, you know, cause I miss my stuff as well a lot and things like that. So it was, the idea was just to create a place where these guys can nest higher up and see whether that will benefit them in this breeding project and things like that, you know? Oh, that is so interesting. So were people conventionally using nesting boxes on the floor to try to get the monitors? Yeah. So they'll do, they'll do like little boxes on the ground, buckets, double buckets with a, with a heat pack and things like that. And inside or heat, a heat mat in the inside. And it works for people that works perfectly fine. There's no issues or anything like that. The tree monitors were breed and reproduced. I just wanted to keep it in a way that was, I just want to innovate on the idea. It's the same principle. It's the same, like create a location that's heated, that has, you know, dense substrate and just allows them to dig and, you know, they feel comfortable. Uh, and I just wanted to make it a little bit easier on them and kind of like experiment to see, Hey, when I tried the nesting boxes last year, they didn't work. You know, I, I had, I had two separate zones, two different types of boxes. My animals did breed 
but they didn't lay, you know? So whether my parameters are right, probably not. Maybe I could definitely improve on those, you know? But I also want to say, hey, I have these animals and have multiple animals. Maybe I can experiment this year with one pair and see whether this is a better solution for us. Maybe that's the ticket, the key that we've been looking for is that, hey, we're not providing these guys places to lay their eggs up higher. And maybe that's why they're not reproducing more. I don't know. But that that was kind of the inspiration behind that project for sure. So is the idea to leave the eggs incubate in, in the enclosures no, or you pull no, them out no. right away? Yeah, so how you pull you them the, out, yeah. is the heat just to encourage the mother to go dig and without the right. heated box, she won't do it? Right. right. So it, it depends with people, but everybody swears that, that um, with the general idea in the community is that they need to be heated because the female won't go to those areas if they're not heated you know if it's too cold or anything like that for some reason they just don't want to be you know in that they don't they're, they're not diggers they're they're you know arboreal animals that stay in the canopies all day mm-hmm. and things like that so it has to be something with maybe how you know temp zones are in the wild in these specific places that they're laying eggs that they tend to go to a warmer spot but it's just generally kind of approved that yeah warmer is better for them to lay and that and again that goes kind of to kind of prove a point with this with the idea behind the 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 suspended tree boxes the lay boxes is that well you would think like in a if they were laying up in up if they were laying in places that need to be heated you know if they're so high up in the, the trees how are they going to the ground and it being a warm place is mm-hmm. most likely not a warm place for them to lay in the ground you know what would be some place that might retain heat well maybe a Maybe a, a a termite mound that's getting direct sunlight that's already enclosed that has all these these caverns inside that probably help create a crazy controlled environment. Like mm-hmm. to me, that just makes more sense than them going to the ground to dig a hole to lay their eggs and leaving them there, and them reproducing in the wild without getting eaten by the other animals that are around. You know, so a lot of thoughts when <laughs> for sure when I was developing this. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, it, it really does make a lot of sense. So, can you describe just? what the actual box looks like for those that are just listening. Cause it, it does, it almost looks like an egg shape itself. And then right. is it something that you can easily take out? And you said you can bolt it up and, and have it, right. in there, but is it something that you can easily just remove so you can incubate the eggs? Right. Right. So, 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 so the idea behind it, it's a, it's, it's shaped like an egg with a large surface uh, with, with a large entrance hole at the top. Um, and it has, it's perforated for looks like it has this like texture on the outside for looks, but the, the texture also has all these small little holes all around the entire thing is, is basically kind of, uh, is a, I forget the word for it, but has holes throughout it, which are drainage holes uh, for the misting setups that I have. So as they get misted, they're, they're continuously like damp and that allows them to drain so that they're not waterlogged or anything like that. Uh, and then the rear of these guys, um, there's a clip system that, I'm, um, that I'm developing on it. Um, and I, I, my prototypes that are like in use right now with my other animals, those are just, uh, fixed, onto the walls permanently. I can just like screw them in. I can remove them and screw them elsewhere. But the new design, I'm, I'm still working out how to like make it so that it's like, you know, perfectly fine. But that would be you, you, you put, you attach the base permanently to whatever fixture and then you'd be able to just slide in the holder and remove it in and out and kind of place it wherever you'd want within the cage and stuff like that. Yeah, that is such a good idea. And I can imagine that people are pretty excited about it. Yeah, hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah, that I've got people. I'm I'm making them in a smaller size as well because a lot of people, as cool as the lay box thing was, 
people want to use them as hides, you know, because of the same thing. But to be able to put them with like some moss or something like that, that can be easily drained and put everywhere. Like, so they're they're excited for the hide aspect as well as the, the laying aspect because it's a whole different type of way. You know, I'm sure there's someone out there who's tried this method, maybe with like buckets or something like that. This is just a, a different, it's, it's just trying something that we've already know how to do differently and seeing if it will work. And so many people are excited for that, that change, you know? Well, and, and so for those that are listening, the outside of it, like you already said, it's sort of textured and makes it look natural and it's right. sort of interesting that way. But once you have it printed, I guess it will be, it's a like a black plastic. Right. Do you think people will do something to the outside to make it sort of fit in with the rest of their enclosure? So it doesn't yeah. look like just black plastic or how, how sure. could you do that? Yeah. I'm sure with maybe like silicone. I mean, like mm-hmm. a lot of, if you look at how a lot of the people, the, 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 the tree frog guys, uh, or the dark frog guys do their fake walk rolls. Uh, you know, they, they a lot of times they'll get something like um, gorilla glue. They'll put it on the outside and they'll put moss on it mm-hmm. and let the moss kind of like you know kind of like like settle on or silicone as well. So I, I could see I can definitely envision something like that being done. You know, where you could just like put some glue on the side, put some moss, and then boom, you have this wall, this little this nest box that looks completely natural. You know. Yeah. Well, I, I can just imagine like. You know, especially even for arboreal snakes, you, having hides up in in the canopy is something that you know sometimes people incorporate, but a lot of times we don't. A lot of times, snake keepers have hides on the floor, which is you know sometimes they're used. But right, if you're an right, arboreal right. snake, we a lot of times people aren't providing hides; they just have mm-hmm. climbing areas, and there's nowhere for them to go and and tuck themselves into like they would inside a tree or something. Right. But what's really interesting is being able to just unclip it. So you know, I a lot of times snakes are hiding and I have one hide that I can remove the whole hide with her in it with with my Brazilian rainbow ah, boa in it yeah. and it's just it's just so good I don't have to discur- disturb her I can right. pull the hide out completely and then I can put the hide down on the floor or on the table and she's not going to come right. out or anything and it's just so much less stressful for the animal you don't have to rip them out of their enclosure wow. like I think this is a great idea I'd never thought of it from that perspective you know I always yeah that's a that's a great yeah, 100% for when you have to do maintenance or anything like that in a cage yeah. it makes it so much more easier that's especially really cool. if you have the weight of the you know, if you know the weight of the the hide itself, then you can put the hide directly on the scale with the animal right. in it. And you're constantly you can weigh them very easily because Boom. that's the easiest way to weigh a snake is if they're already in a hide, or else it's just a nightmare. I mean, right, weighing right. snakes is just so annoying to begin with. So yeah, I think you can. This idea can really be expandable in many different ways. Yeah. Do you think you think going a more natural route like the well the way that I have right now? Do you think that's something that's more I, I have people who are interested in it. I have people who also like it when they like the version without all the texture and things like that. What do you think? Is that something? I guess it's like I, it's in all the eye of the beholder, huh? Yeah, I think so. And I think people who are keeping more naturalistically will gravitate to the ones that have more right. texture and whatnot. And then people who are a little more clinical and maybe they're doing some breeding things right. would, would like it to be just, I mean, a lot of people just use those plain PVC black hides, right? right? And they right, like right. those. And some people hate them because they're an eyesore. But yeah, I think I think you could easily do both. That's and yeah, I think it would be, that's a re- it's a really neat idea. There really isn't much out there for, you see people using like coconuts and whatnot, like right, that sort exactly. of stuff, but yeah, it's cool. That's what pushed me towards this, you know, and, uh, and developing a lot of different things. You know, I think I was telling Bill the other day, but like me also work, I'm also working on a weight so that I can like feed live insects to my animals, like a, a, a method that I can control like remotely, you know, so that, you know, for pl- times when I'm gone. You know, have like a container that already holds a couple bugs or something like that, but then have a way to be able to have them released and, you know, then close back again, you know, so that, again, 
feed them when I'm on like a two day vacation or something like that, you know, but like, yeah, there's different things that I'm trying to create that, that aren't available right now to the market and to fix these, these little small problems that I see, you know, that, yeah. that we don't, we don't have solutions for. I always say that it seems like the reptile hobby is so far behind as far as technology goes. Like there's so much technology available around the planet for things and we just right. don't utilize a lot of it. Right. And if you look at the aquarium hobby, they use a lot. They have some amazing technology, lots of automatic things, you know, creating different wave systems yep. and mm-hmm. it's amazing. And I think an automatic feeder would be a great idea. So have you kind of visualized how that would look? Yeah, would yeah. Would be like so, a hopper on top or something? Right, exactly. Yeah, because I already work with the 3D printers, I'm already pretty familiar with kind of like you know, programming and things like that, Arduinos and things. So it would be a simple thing with like creating a, a container, you know, that holds crickets or, or, or roaches and then uh, creating a, a port that just closes and, you know, opens it with a switch, you know, using like a cam, like rubber bands and things that you'll have like a door that slides open and then closes back up. So, you know, whatever happens to be there, but have it in a way that it drops right into one of these bowls into the, into the dish, the dishes that I have. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, boom. It'll drop right into the dish, close right back up. My animal has new food that day or whatever, you know, and, and then go from there. So I have, I'm already working on prototypes. It's just, kind of refining things and making sure that's right. You know, I like, I'm the type of guy that unless my product is a hundred percent perfect, you know, or I have people that are telling me like, like the feeder dish I've made, that's already been, since I've gotten into tree monitors, I developed that and mm-hmm. I haven't released it publicly until this year. Um, you know, you know, because I wasn't confident it was working. I've had people using that product for two years and them telling me, yep, it's been through heat. My monitor is bashing it. This and that. It works. Then I felt comfortable releasing it. So mm-hmm. I'm the type of guy that takes my time making sure I have all the kinks out. And then I'll, I'll have fun with people like checking it out and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. So as of right now, as far as the products that you have, can people buy the, they can buy food holders? Yeah, they, they contact can buy you, Or what's food, the process there? Food holders for sure. You can, you can buy them at, at the moment. I don't have a website up. Unfortunately, I'm just very busy and haven't had a chance to, but I am working on one. Um, but generally people just contact me directly in my D you know, on Instagram or on Facebook or via email, if you have that as well. And I can give you all the information to share. Um, and I make them out for them. You know, I, I have plenty holders ready made already. So it's, mm-hmm. it's just pay for those guys and I can ship them out and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. I'm sure you'll hear from people after this as well. <laughs> and do you have any, so you have the the hide boxes, the nesting boxes, and the potentially automatic feeder. Are there any other ideas that you're tossing around that you would want to talk about or is some things you want to keep uh, Yeah, some secret? things I really want to keep secret because I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. developing the website and I'm, I'm trying to like have this like nice catalog of like items that I can provide that I see as things that people can use, you know, but uh, I can give you things that I, I'm working with people who keep venomous animals you know, so, so creating items that help those guys out. I also stay keep, safe. Yeah, exactly. I also have items that I've been working for the, um, arboreal, uh, uh, snakes, you know, so the, again, don't want to say too much about the items that I'm working on, but, and then also working for like, uh, you know, smaller geckos, like crested geckos and things like that as well. So, so I have items once I'm, once I have the website up and everything else, and that way people can see like, Oh, look, yes, various items that people can kind of test out for me and stuff like that yeah yeah well we're just scratching the surface i can't right. wait to see how that all develops <laughs> so w- once you get to that stage where you have a website and you have some products that you're comfortable releasing what what is your vision for how that will work production wise you're gonna have to get some more printers and you're just gonna spend your days just printing no things no, and make, no no no, how no. Does that work? i mean we'll, we'll see but i'll probably scale it up where i can like the lucky the good thing for me of being in new york city there's so many bigger farms than what i have you know mm-hmm. so i, I i'm able to 
probably arts outsource people making them for me and things like that. You know, my, my line is for my, what I have right now, what I can do production wise, I'm fully comfortable. I can vamp it up a lot more if I wanted to, for sure. You know, I'm, I'm able to take on, you know, with five printers printing out, you know, I can probably in one day I can probably make, I don't know, like 70 holders, you know, easily if I'm just there just all day, you know, taking them on and off. So I have enough to yeah. be able to, to keep up with whatever demand I have right now. But later on, when I fully ramp it up, I'm going to I'll probably outsource a lot of that stuff. And I guess that's pretty easy, right? You just share a schematic or share the plans and then the computers do the work. Uh, that's all it is. It's a button. And then I, I just got to be there to remove it and reset it, you know? Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited for this. I think it's funny the way once you, you, you think about a concept and you realize how deep that concept could go and how many things could be done here that people just don't think about, right? Like like for the automatic feeder is a great idea. I think if you had automatic feeders and you had uh, surveillance cameras, then people could leave yeah. for several days, especially 100%. if you have different stations for water. And mm-hmm. and yeah, it's an amazing idea. Is there anything that we didn't chat about today that you wanted to to mention before we wrap up? Um, I, I would say, uh, I, I'm sure because you're a very popular, uh, you know, network and everything like that, you know, on YouTube and things like that, this might draw some attention towards blue tree monitors and, and people wanted to kind of like figure out more information, things like that. Um, there's, I want to kind of lead people towards where they can maybe find more information on there. You know, I would say that as of right now, I discussed earlier, like one for me, when I started off, the biggest help was places like Reptic Zone and, you know, and the King Snake kind of forums and stuff like that, marketplace forums back in the day. Um, right now, my biggest help, the thing that's been helping me out tremendously have been the local Facebook groups, uh, you know, uh, like, like the tree monitor Facebook groups. And I think it's like two or three of those, uh, at the moment, um, check those places out, ask a lot of questions there, you know, kind of like deep dive into that whole world of those people that are keeping them right now before you get into these animals, you know, and I'm sure there's going to be one or two people are like, Hey, I really want to get a tree monitor now after seeing this sort of thing, make sure that you do a lot of research um, you take the time to kind of figure out and learn about these animals before you just dive head first. You know, I got mine already having kind of experience with with monitors in general. Um, I'm not going to say that these are a hard, you know, they're. I'm not going to say that they're a hard species to keep, but they're definitely not a leopard gecko. They're definitely not a, a bearded dragon, you know. So keep that in mind. Um, ask a lot of questions. Join the community. Um, and yeah. Just keep on, just keep on, you know, kind of figuring that out so that you can be 100% successful when venturing into this world, you know? Yeah, that's a great point. It's always nice to think about wanting a species, but it's a whole other game of actually keeping and caring for a species. Can you let everybody know where they can find you online? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. If you find, if you ever want to check out what I'm doing, the progress, like some of the builds that I do, like I'm always building cages, I'm always designing stuff, always messing with the tree monitors. You can find me on Instagram at father.blue and i spell the blue blue b-l-o-u um or you can find me on uh facebook uh as eduardo garabito um yeah and then watch out soon i'll have a website and everything like that dedicated to tree blue tree monitors and their conservation as well as the 3d printed products and that, that i made awesome yeah I, i'm so excited for this eddie and i think that 
we'll probably do another one in the future because you have yeah. all these you're, you're one of those things where we're gonna have to catch up with you in a year from now to see what you're doing <laughs> and and for those listening he just did edited a great podcast with the reptile entrepreneur podcast and i think there's some other podcasts coming out as well so i'll make sure those are in the links for for people to go because they go into some more detail with the 3d printing and whatnot so Eddie, thank you so much for joining me on an episode. This was a fantastic chat. I cannot wait to see where this heads. And I'm going to have to pick up some of your, your products as well because I'd love to test them. <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you again, man. I'm a I'm a big fan and I just, I'm super excited that I get to share this. You know, it's something that I'm so passionate and excited about. And I'm glad that you got, you gave me a chance to speak about it, man. <laughs> you know? Awesome. It was a pleasure. Uh, yeah, same here. Same here, my dude. All right, that is the end of that episode. Eddie, thank you so much for joining me. I had a blast chatting with you and I cannot wait to have you on again, maybe in a year or so, so we can see what you're up to. I'm definitely gonna be keeping an eye on your Instagram page and picking up a couple of those products so I can test them out. And I know that you're just scratching the surface, so it's gonna be pretty incredible to watch you develop over the next couple of years. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. If you did enjoy it, make sure you share it on social media. If you wanna give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasting app, that does really help. And really one of the best things you can do is just go over to Eddie's Instagram page or his Facebook and go say hi. Let them know that you heard him on the podcast that I know the guests really love to hear from the listeners. So if you want to do that, I would love that. If you are looking for more information on this episode or any other episode that has been recorded, head to animalsathomenetwork.com. Of course, that's where all the show notes are. And if you are interested in joining us on Patreon, head to patreon.com slash animalsathome. And as always, thank you so much to customreptilehabitats.com for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. We're going to be doing some pretty cool projects with Custom Reptile Habitat soon, so keep an eye out for that. But as always, I do really appreciate their support. There are affiliate links in both the show notes and the YouTube description. Okay, that is it for this week, and I will see you next Sunday.